season of Don't Shoot the Messenger is brought to you by 91. 91 is an authorized financial service provider. What a scene it is, the Houston Astrodome. There was no way I was going to miss this. I was so proud of Billie Jean. Beautiful shot by Billie Jean King. I remember being so nervous I had to pace. I was so scared for her and for all of us. The comedy has gone out of Bobby Riggs. Billie Jean was, you could pop a quarter off of her. You know, she was, she was, ooh, she wasn't playing with him. It was a match that seemed to captivate just about all of us. Bobby Riggs, 55 years old, the proud male chauvinist. The male is king, the male is supreme. Billie Jean King the 29-year-old crusader for women's rights. It's a feminist thing. Uh, how important is that, Billy? The women's movement is important to me. America's culture clash spilling onto the tennis court with an astounding 50 million viewers on edge wondering who would come out on top. I can't even remember any kind of event in any other sport that brought out the emotion in people as this match did. 40 years ago. That match, 20th September, 1973. More than 30,000 people packed into the Houston Astrodome to watch a man play a woman in tennis, a contest billed as the Battle of the Sexes. An estimated 90 million people were following along on TV. It's still the most watched tennis match in human history. In that clip we just played from ABC News, there were some people talking about how invested they were in the match who we don't generally associate with tennis commentary, like... Gloria Estefan. And this is all despite the fact that one of the players, Bobby Riggs, had peaked in his career more than 25 years earlier. To put that into perspective, in 2021, that would be like Andre Agassi coming out of retirement to play one of the current women's champions, which, sure, might be interesting for tennis fans, but it's pretty safe to say it would not be a global sensation. What made the Battle of the Sexes match significant was the context in which it occurred with the match builders finally answering the question of whether a woman could compete at sports on the same level as a man. The depressing thing is that almost half a century later, it seems that question is still somehow up for debate. Welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger, the Daily Maverick podcast where we bring you the stories behind the stories. In our third season, we're looking at solutions to problems, fixes for issues. And the challenge we're examining today is the state of women's sport in South Africa, which is decades and decades behind the state of play for men. In this episode, we're talking to Daily Maverick's resident sports guru and to the current Springbok women's rugby coach. We're exploring how the USA managed to create the world's most successful women's soccer industry within two generations and busting some of those tired myths you still hear all the time, like that women's sport just can't attract any money because nobody wants to watch it. It's 2021. Time to get with it. I'm your host, Rebecca Davis. I think Bobby must start in as the favourite of the match. Uh, I think he's got a little bit too much uh, control of the ball and uh, know-how for the for the girls. Uh, Billy Jean will put up a, a fine match. I think it'll be a, a good contest. But uh, while doing Bobby research for this episode, I unearthed a copy of the original broadcast of the Battle of the Sexes match. 
Bobby Riggs, a 55-year-old former world number one, taking on 29-year-old Billie Jean King, that year's Wimbledon champion, and an outspoken advocate for women's tennis. Bobby Riggs was a hustler. History will probably remember him more for his self-promotion than his tennis game. He proudly called himself a male chauvinist. He said the whole notion of women's tennis was nonsense, essentially, and claimed that at age 55, he could still beat any women's tennis player. Bobby Riggs' hustle was basically trying to goad female tennis champions into playing him. He'd already done it with the erstwhile number one, Margaret Court, and he beat her in straight sets in what the press called the Mother's Day Massacre because journalists could simply not pass up an opportunity to point out that the match took place on Mother's Day, which made the whole thing an additionally hilarious joke at women's expense. Anyway, Billie Jean King agrees to the match which becomes known as the Battle of the Sexes. And the original broadcast, I discovered, is just this kind of chilling time capsule, in the sense that the tennis is the bonbon at the centre, coated with thick layers of every kind of sexism you can imagine. When Billie Jean enters the stadium, the commentator, who is a man, obviously, kicks off by saying that if she took off her glasses and let her hair grow a bit, she might be attractive enough to make it in Hollywood. They interview all these male experts before the game, 99% of whom say that Bobby Riggs will definitely win because Billie Jean, quote, like all women, is slower. When they officially start the match, Bobby Riggs doesn't even bother to take off his warm-up jacket, which says Sugar Daddy on it in giant letters. It's a misogyny circus. But what happens, of course, is that Billie Jean King goes on to thrash Bobby Riggs in straight sets, 6-4, 6-3, Initially, there were a few moments where it didn't look like it was gonna go King's way. And she said afterwards that she realized, my God, I have to win this. The future of women's tennis depends on it. And not just that. If I don't win this, all of us women are going to be laughing stocks forever. She does win, thank God. Although even now, 48 years later, you'll find plenty of male experts with theories about this match. Theories about how Billie Jean King just won because she was so much younger and any old 29-year-old would have been able to do the same. Theories about how Bobby Riggs threw the match to pay off his gambling debts. Because apparently it really is that hard to believe that a female tennis player at the top of her game might be able to easily defeat a washed-up former male champion. Watching the original broadcast made me feel two things most acutely. The first was a sense of how surreal the whole spectacle seemed, how utterly backward. It seemed so weird to think that this even happened. And the closest thing I can compare it to in recent years is when Oscar Pistorius raced a horse in Qatar in 2012, perhaps a subject for another podcast. But the second thing I felt, perhaps paradoxically, is how little things have changed. Because even though Billie Jean King won that match and far more significant equality campaigns thereafter, even though tennis is now one of the few sports where men and women can occasionally walk away with the same prize money, we're still in a fundamental way fighting the same battle, 
trying to persuade people of the basic fact that women can play sport on an elite level and be entertaining. And in South Africa, that fight is not even close to being won. We don't have a professional rugby league for women. Uh, we don't have a professional domestic cricket structure. We do have a professional women's football structure, but it's not very well paid, and at least it's off the ground, though. And netball, for instance, which is hosting the 2023 Netball World Cup in South Africa, there's no professional women's netball league in South Africa, yet uh, our team does pretty well. The Proteas do phenomenally well on a global stage in netball. We're way behind in terms of organized professional leagues for sport. That's Craig Ray, Daily Maverick's sports editor. Craig says that in terms of individual sporting events, the prospects for South African women are a little bit better for tennis and golf and swimming and track and field events. But generally speaking, it is pretty pathetic. When you try to get any kind of even vaguely rational explanation of why the resources put into women's sport are so utterly paltry compared to the riches poured into men's sport, the answer you'll invariably hear is about TV broadcasts. That it's still mainly men who watch sport, and men just aren't interested in watching women's team sports on TV. And as a result, these sports just cannot attract funding in anywhere near the same league as the men's game. But actually, in this year of our Lord 2021, we have plenty of examples proving that when you do broadcast women's sport on a wide platform, it's capable of attracting enormous audiences. At the 2016 Olympics, for instance, the single event which drew the highest viewership in South Africa was when our women's soccer team, Banyana Banyana, played. In 2019, in fact, Parliament heard that whenever Banyana Banyana plays live, they're now guaranteed a TV audience of well over a million on SABC. To put that into perspective, the men's English Premier League soccer matches, when broadcast on SABC, draw an audience which is about one-third of that size. And Craig can cite loads of other examples internationally. The 2019 FIFA Women's World Cup in France generated a record viewership of uh, 993 million people and another 480-odd million across other digital platforms. And the final alone was watched live by 260 million people. And the majority of those, uh, 60%, were men. It's not just soccer either, although it's logical that soccer is often mentioned since it's the most popular sport in the world. The Big Bash League in Australia, it's a cricket league, a T20 competition. They started a women's element to it at the same time as they, they started the men's, but it was really just sort of a tacked-on curtain raiser to the men's game about five, six years ago. And it's become a standalone product in its own right with a massive viewership. I think the most recent Big Bash League women's final in Australia attracted over 3 million viewers, which in a country with around about 20 million population, that's a very high number. So let's be clear on this. It's just not true that nobody wants to watch women play team sports on TV. As Craig says, it's a case of build it and they shall come. And never has that been more true than in the case of the explosion of women's soccer in the USA, which is far and away the greatest success story women's sport has ever seen. When we're back, how they did it. Change is everywhere. Sometimes it's good, sometimes confusing, or so extraordinary that it challenges everyone and everything. 
But whatever change comes next, 91 will strive to do everything possible to make a positive change for your investments and for the world we live in. 91. Investing for a world of change. This season of Don't Shoot the Messenger is brought to you by 91. 91 is an authorized financial service provider. Have any questions or comments about the latest episode of Don't Shoot the Messenger? Why not post them on the comments section of Apple Podcasts and we'll try and look into them for future episodes. You can also rate and review us. Our podcast is only possible because of your engagement and we want to know what you think. Whenever you talk to an expert about women's sport, they will at some point direct you to the United States of America and that country's women's soccer scene. Because it's the holy grail of how it is possible to develop women's sport within a few decades. Here's the Springbok women's rugby coach, Stanley Robenheimer, for instance, who we'll hear more from a bit later. We can see what has happened to American soccer. If we want to be competitive, we have to look at it from an equal footing. Side note, trust me, we are aware of the rich irony that an episode on women's sport features so many male voices. We really tried to get our female coaches and sportswomen on this episode, but the timing didn't work out, possibly because many of them still have to have jobs on the side, unlike their male counterparts. Anyway, back to America. In the 1970s, new anti-discrimination laws meant that high schools were required to offer women's sports in a serious way, often for the first time. Soccer was a popular choice with high school administrators because it was cheap and allowed lots of people to play at once. There's another interesting factor here, by the way, which is that men's soccer in the US has never been that big. Allowing women's soccer to carve out space for itself without constant comparisons and so forth. The US national team wins two critical victories. In 1991, the team wins the first ever Women's World Cup. And in 1999, the US team again wins against China in the World Cup on penalty kicks. Those two tournaments really help capture the public imagination, meaning more schoolgirls want to play and you have a wider pool of talent training from a young age. Brands like Nike get involved with sponsorship. And the US teams produce these women players who become national icons. Mia Hamm, who represented USA between 1987 and 2004. Brandi Chastain, now Megan Rapino, Alex Morgan. The sport really takes off. Administrators see that they're onto a good thing and they plow money into training and resources and facilities. And voila, what you have by 2021 is a country where women's soccer is a big-name, big-money industry. But there's a couple of darker elements to this, just to remind you that the real reason why women have to struggle for equality in sport and everywhere else is not actually TV figures or how high they can jump or how fast they can run. It's good old sexism. Here's one of those elements taken from a 2019 Business Insider video. But the team's success isn't just about the popularity of women's soccer in America. It's also about the suppression of the sport abroad. 
England, for example, essentially banned women's soccer from 1921 to 1971. Germany did the same from 1955 to 1970, and so did Brazil from 1941 to 1981. These countries, and many others, claimed that soccer was simply not a women's sport. So for a long time, there were hardly any teams abroad, and that's true even in more modern times. In 2006, for example, there were about 3 million registered youth female players worldwide, and more than half of them were in the U.S. Another depressing factor is that even though the U.S. is the bright shining star of success when it comes to developing women's soccer, this is all still relative. Even the American players have had to become activists, including filing a gender discrimination lawsuit against the U.S. Soccer Federation in 2019. In fact, just a few weeks ago, in March 2021, U.S. soccer star Megan Rapino described their ongoing discrimination to Congress. The United States women's national team has won four World Cup championships. We've won four Olympic gold medals on behalf of this great country. We've filled stadiums. We've broken viewing records. We've sold out our jerseys, all the popular metrics by which we are judged. And yet, despite all of this, we're still paid less than our male counterparts. For each trophy, of which there are many, for each win, for each tie, for each time we play, less. In fact, instead of lobbying with the women's team in our efforts for equal pay and equality in general, the U.S. Soccer Federation has continually lobbied against our efforts and the efforts of millions of people marginalized by gender in the United States. My name is Stanley Raubenheimer. I'm the head coach for the national women's team. And uh, yeah, we're busy preparing for the World Cup 2022. When Stanley Robenheimer says he's the head coach for the national women's team, he means the Springbok women's rugby team. Stanley himself has played rugby at the highest level. So his appointment as coach is an encouraging sign that rugby authorities are finally taking the women's game seriously. I asked what it's like for him when he tells people he's coaching women in the most unladylike of sports. The people I talk to is rugby people most of the time and uh, I think I've got a little bit of credibility in the game. People respect my views on, on the game, so that helps a bit, but you always get, I mean, you can't please everybody every time. So understand that as well. And there's some people, they just frown upon the idea of coaching women. But I must say, I'm learning so much and I'm enjoying the experience and the value that I get out of coaching the team. These women are phenomenal women. Yes, so what they sacrifice to play this game and, and, the, and the real passion for playing rugby in the purest form of it. Uh, that's what excites me about the team and that's what the team brings to me and they fulfill me in so many different ways that I didn't experience when I was coaching men and boys. Stanley is positively evangelical when he talks about his team and about the potential for women's rugby in general. And there are some good reasons to be feeling bullish. World Rugby in March announced a new global competition for women's rugby to kick off in 2023 comprising three divisions. 
Both Stanley and Craig say that if you're watching women's sport, expecting it to be a carbon copy of the male version, obviously you're going to be disappointed. That's not how it works. For instance, everyone knows now that women's tennis is less dominated by serving than the men's game. It's one of the reasons why plenty of people, including me, think women's tennis is more interesting to watch. In the same way, women's soccer, women's rugby, they have their own character. The women's game is not supposed to be the men's game. We're not competing against the men. We're not going to play against the men. We're going to play against the England women's team and the French women's team. And that's where we need to be judged and looked at. So sometimes the people's assessment of the game, it's a two total different games. There's another point worth making here. One of the reasons why broadcasters and sports governing bodies should be focusing on growing women's sports quite intensely at the moment is because it's probably a really good business decision. Here's Craig again. Women's sport is the next growth area in sport. Uh, I think men's sport is pretty saturated. There's not too many places where it can go anymore. Um, you know, football's pretty tied up in its structures. You know, the English Premier League, you've got the Champions League and all these various domestic leagues around the world, including in South Africa. And you've got the World Cup and various African continental tournaments. But uh, as far as domestic women's leagues go, they're a fairly new structure, even in places like England and Germany and, and Spain. So there's a lot more blank canvas and there's a lot more players in the digital market. You know, there's, there's a lot of non, shall we say, non-mainstream broadcasters who are trying to get into the very competitive sporting market. For instance, Amazon Prime is buying into sports markets quite actively. And there's a whole bunch of others. So the more players there are looking for content, the more opportunities there are to create that content. And the next frontier of creating the content is women's sport, really. If we're serious about growing women's sports as a society, there's one institution which is probably more important than any other in this, and that's school. Kids tend to play the sports that are offered by their schools, and many South African schools, even really rich schools, still seem stuck, incapable of thinking beyond netball for girls, soccer and rugby for boys, and so on. And Craig says that to change that, parents might have to become activists. I think a lot of parents need to be active in saying, well, my daughter wants to play X, Y isn't happening. And maybe there's a, a sort of a citizen aspect to this where, where people have to maybe start clubs or lobby the school to play it and, and volunteer their services as coaches. You know, it might have to be some level of activism to make it happen as well. Is it fair that girls should have to fight to get the same opportunities that come naturally to boys? No, of course not. But as Billie Jean King understood all those years ago, sport is never just about sport. Don't Shoot the Messenger is a podcast brought to you by The Daily Maverick. This episode was produced by Haji Mohamed Dauji and written by Rebecca Davis. Editing by Tevya Turok Shapiro. Sound mix by Bernard Kotze and additional support from Catherine Kotzer. You can listen to Don't Shoot the Messenger on the Daily Mavericks website, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more, subscribe to the Daily Mavericks newsletters and follow us on Twitter and Instagram.
questions or comments about the latest episode of Don't Shoot the Messenger, why not post them on the comments section of Apple Podcasts and we'll try and look into them for future episodes. You can also rate and review us. Our podcast is only possible because of your engagement and we want to know what you think. 